Section 20 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Soul and Body, Part 2. Let us attentively consider the influence of the sacred humanity at this very hour, at any given hour, while we write or while we read. The vast heaven where the vision of God is unveiled is all thrilling with its influence. The huge circumferences of heaven's various spheres are trembling with the life and pulses of the sacred humanity. It has unveiled that vision, unveiled it even to the angels. At this moment it is peopling heaven with continual fresh multitudes, even of infants, earth's infants, who enter there through it magnificent, wise, full-grown, Christ-like men, who, through the marvellous waters of baptism, have pierced the earth, grown, budded, bloomed, borne fruit, and garnered themselves in heaven in less than an hour, perhaps, of time. Redeemed penitents are entering there, with long inward histories, all full of the mysterious action of the sacred humanity. Perfect love has leapt at once a minute ago. This minute also, and the next minute, will do so, and all minutes, from earth straight to heaven, but it had hold of the hand of Jesus while it leapt. Long sojourners in purgatory have just arrived upon the bright shores to begin their eternal youth, miracles of salvation, hard-won trophies of the precious blood, whose drops made those fires medicinal even while it allayed them. Look at the unwearied angels, upright spirits beaming in their magnificence. They are the subjects of the sacred humanity. That human nature is the cause of their being in heaven, the fountain as well as the occasion of all their graces, the means as well as the sustaining of their prolific glory. There is not an angel in those burning rings, but man made him what he was, enabled him to do what he did, and placed him royally and securely there. The sacred humanity is the actual light of the heavenly Jerusalem, whatever that may mean, and it doubtless means a thousand things. It is both sun and moon, and other sun and moon are needed not because of it. It is the light in which the vision is seen. The manifold functions of light to terrestrial life are but so many faint foreshadowings of what the light of the Lamb is to that grand, deep, broad life above. How fair in that light, meek, distinct, yet in a jewelled blaze of spiritual splendour, a very unspeakable starry heaven of itself, rises Mary's throne yet she was placed there by the sacred humanity. The sacred humanity is the whole account of her, of whom the highest theology on earth can give no account that may content us. Throughout all those vast courts of blessedness, living that dread life before the unaverted face of the most holy trinity, a life of overwhelming blissful fire, there is no adequate worship of the blessed trinity except by the sacred humanity. The souls of men make lowly music there. The spirits of angels tune louder lyres with a more daring inspiration. The being of Mary throws up soft ocean waves to the foot of the throne, which come so near, yet fall short so infinitely. The sacred heart alone worships the threefold majesty in adorable perfection, by virtue of its union with the word. Heaven, therefore, is not imaginable without that human nature enthroned and worshipped there. 
If we look at earth, we find the action of the sacred humanity no less potent, no less universal, no less indispensable. Can the grace which there is upon the earth this day be measured by any one but God? In how many millions of souls, whether in the church or slowly drawing towards it, is not grace and work, manifold and multiform, wedding itself to all manner of opposite occasions, steering all manner of diverging circumstances, adapting itself to how many varieties of fortune and position. Here, with a sort of feeble beauty, it is preluding in a heathen soul, or hiddenly sweetening the bitterness of misbelief. Here it is faintly prophesying over the soul, softly as a cloud shadow rests upon the lee, of some supernatural vocation which is gathering to a head all day, like the stately preparations of a summer storm. There it is fighting with sin, clamouring in the soul, yet inaudible, striking hard, but in the fury of battle all unfelt. There again it is keeping at high tide the calm fullness of grace in some holy practised soul. Elsewhere it is coming in various sevenfold array to those sacraments which are streaming and rushing and glancing and resounding all day and night in the church, like the mountain cataract in the woods. Elsewhere again its name is Legion, and it is trooping to the deathbeds of men. In darkness and in light upon bad and good, in the safe ark of the church or amidst those drowning in the outer deluge, grace is at work, even beyond the suspicion of those of us who deem of it most liberally, and the single sufficient fountain of all this grace is the sacred humanity, whether the grace scatter itself ubiquitous over the outlying world, or be almost irresistibly concentrated in the church and sacraments. Neither are the effects of this singular and preeminent human nature less wonderful, although they are less important, on the mind of earth, the Incarnation has been built up into the whole fabric of our present literature, even in its most irreligious parts. The commonest notions of what is divine have taken their shape from it. The sickly eulogies of a misty, progressive, unindividualized humanity have caught from it whatever in them is not mere sound or insane affectation. Every tenth stone, at least in the palace of literature, is an idea of the Incarnation. It is the novelty and freshness of all that the modern world has thought and sung and said. Without it, unbelief would not know how to make itself attractive for an hour. Art lives by it, and without it would descend into a pagan copyist tomorrow. Take away the incarnation, and we may doubt whether art would ever recover itself from the abyss of unhelpful antiquarianism into which it would fall. Systems of philosophy either embody the incarnation as an element in what they affirm, or they take their shape and consistence from their antagonism to it. In no way and by no manner of device can they clear themselves of it, and exist and utter themselves calmly and loftily as if it had never been. Politics borrow from it even while they are limiting its action, and diplomacy, just in proportion as it is inwardly hostile, grows outwardly respectful. That enthroned human nature is the keystone of every arch which sustains modern civilization. Any sort of glory the world could attain to without it now would be but the glory of a ruin. Is there any province of the human mind in which we could now do without it, and the congenial ideas to which it has given birth? No present is possible which the past has not begotten, and the present is the only road to the future. 
Hence the sacred humanity has become simply indispensable and inevitable to every possible development and most unthought-of revolution of the world's life, even in spheres the most remote from truth and from religion. The sacred humanity is the king of earth and is actually resident amongst us in countless palaces. It leads a hidden life, one most fruitful department of which consists of nothing else than a continual averting of judgments and calamities from the whole race, whose nature has been honoured by the word's assumption of it. It holds the elements in control, and renders their might more benignant than their laws would have led us to anticipate. It bridles the earthquake and tames the pestilence. It keeps men safe on an earth which is always quivering and dipping, turns the wild floods at their most perilous angles, guides into the soft, unheard earth thousands of thunderbolts which would have scathed life or limb or property. It beautifies the rough ways of death, even while it bids us tread them as a punishment from which there can be no dispensation. There is not perhaps one human heart from which it has not averted many unknown, yet once imminent sorrows, and which it has not saved from pains of the flesh, which would have been harder to bear than we like now to think. We do not know what we owe to Mass and the blessed sacrament of comfort, peace, and unharmed common life. Last of all, and this would fill a volume, this sacred humanity is itself the love of earth and the magnet of all earth's holy love, causing life to be softer and more bearable, making all that is noble in us divine, ennobling what would else be mean, and just when life seems coming to a point when it must become unendurable, opening away and letting us down into some sudden bed of roses which have no thorns and are so far from innovating the soul that they fortify it as with some heavenly elixir. Beneath the earth is that strange, almost unimaginable church of the suffering souls, a work of divine art, a creation of love which is never at fault for means to secure its ends, yet not supplementary, as nothing in creation is, but part of the great merciful design for the discipline and success of man. Over that strange life of fiery suffering and of assured love, blended in equal and equable intensities, are cast the spells of the sacred humanity. Nowhere is gloom so soft, nowhere are shadows so beautiful as in the land of purgatory. There are few of the redeemed to whom the geography of that valley of expectation must not one day become familiar. But it is through the sacred humanity that we enter there. Jesus is our judge as man, not as the word, and it is at his bidding almost anticipated by our own love of perfect purity that we enter there. His sentence is the gateway by which we gain access to those fires of the predestinate, a happy gateway to a land of pain because implying a sentence of immortal happiness. We shall have seen the sacred humanity before we enter there. A momentary intellectual vision of it will have passed before us, momentary yet so engraven on our souls that we can never forget it, even if our pathway of fire lies before us in perspective for centuries of earth's slow time. It is in our blessed Lord's sacred humanity as the head of creation that the communion of saints is consummated, and it is by that communion that any help can find its road to our souls while they are imprisoned there, the captives of patiently impatient hope. It is by the satisfactions which he made in his human nature that all those holy souls are gradually relieved and finally released. 
for even our own satisfactions would have been no satisfactions if his had not gone before. It is his human blood, freshly outpoured in the daily mass, which quenches the bitter flames. It is the second vision of his sacred humanity, for which every soul in all that soft and soundless realm of tranquil martyrdom is craving at this very hour. Purgatory is a province of our Lord's kingdom, which seems privileged to stand in peculiarly close relations to his humanity. Even in hell, that gentle humanity is active and energetic. Hell itself is but the consequence of the rejection of the Incarnation. There are none there but those who with assiduous perversity have placed themselves there. There are none there whose going there it was not the intention and the wish of the sacred humanity to hinder. There are none there who had not with unprofitable valour to gain a miserable conquest over Jesus in order to get there. His mere name receives there endlessly a kind of horrified worship, the unwelcome tribute of a terror that is not beautified by hope. Lucifer became the mean king of hell, a baffled inglorious tyrant because he would not keep his glorious throne in heaven as a vassal king to the babe of Bethlehem. It was as man that Jesus, over whose shadow the miserable angel had stumbled in heaven, conquered hell's king on earth and disjointed the compactness of his kingdom beneath the earth. All the clocks that strike the hours on earth mark some new victory of the sacred humanity over the rebel spirit. Each grace given is a blow struck, each sacrament administered is a fortress taken, each mercy granted is a gain for heaven, each intervention of deathbed absolution is an actually robbing hell of what seems by earthly justice to be its due. Nay, down in the pit itself the sacred humanity is sensibly felt, like a throbbing heart in the intolerable darkness. The skirts of his love trail over the fires while the outcasts curse it as it passes. All the sufferings there, faithfully, eloquently, as in their immeasurable intensity, they express the grandeur of the divine justice, are less terrible than they ought to be because of the merits of that superangelic human nature. For that nature, ubiquitous in its benignant power, permitted master, as it were, of the resources of the divinity, lengthens the slanting beams of the divine compassion, and prolongs them under the green earth, even till they silver somewhat of that outer darkness. May we be forgiven if we say a word or two of other worlds of which we know nothing. Their possibilities, at least, will help to complete our idea of the empire of the world's humanity. The question of the inhabitants of the other planets or of the distant central stars, by reasonable creatures, is one which it does not appear likely that science will ever settle, and on which revelation has not authentically spoken. Minds which love analogy find a difficulty in conceiving that all the orbs which night braids upon her forehead, and yet which are still invisibly looking down upon us through the white light of day, should be meant for nothing more than the lamps of a Chinese feast, or a colossal game of material laws, and a puzzle of interchanging attractions and repulsions. Gigantic wildernesses of matter, untenanted by moral agents, appear out of keeping with the analogies of creation. On the other hand, minds, to whom theological truth is almost the only attractive truth, and rightly considered is properly itself all truth, are met by inferences from the mystery of the Incarnation, 
which seem to them irresistible, and yet which will not fit in with the notion of this world, the scene of the incarnation, being but one, and a very insignificant one in a crowd of reasonable worlds. But the man of science must be less bigoted, and leave more room for fresh analogies, such as perhaps he has never dreamed of yet, and the theologian must beware of narrowness, the disease to which he is most subject, and must eschew that miserable haste of little minds to close questions which legitimate authority has left wide open. A theologian above other men should be one who can take into his large heart with genial sympathy, rather than with critical distrust, the whole of the century in which he lives. Surely it would be a downright grief to any thinking and heaven-hoping man to dream for one moment that any, the least of God's mysteries, had room enough in our widest systems and was not a thousand times bigger truth than it seems to those whose intelligence magnifies it most. The doctrine of the Incarnation is in no peril from the inhabitants of a million other worlds. God's centres are different from ours, and the sacred humanity assumed on earth would remain the centre of all those numberless creations, just as it is now the centre, head, king, type, and cause of the angelical creation, which needs not a material home at all, much less has any necessary connection with the matter of this particular planet. The dogma of the Incarnation is not then committed to any view upon the plurality of worlds, while at the same time the scriptural revelation of the existence of the angels and their manifold relations to men may breed in the theologian's mind a presumption that the silence of the scripture upon beings who, if they exist, must be with the angels and ourselves of the one family of Christ, is against the notion that other orbs are yet inhabited by reasonable beings. Nevertheless, as I have already suggested in another work, the modern discoveries of geology seem at once to permit the theologian to take the view to which he is perhaps most inclined, and also to meet the common objection on the other side of the unlikelihood of so many huge bright worlds being left untenanted. Many writers have argued as if those who held the other planets to be unpeopled now must hold also that they would remain unpeopled, and hence much fallacy and confusion have arisen. To repeat what I have said elsewhere, we have no right to conclude as certain that the creation of rational beings took place all at one time. The corporeal and incorporeal creations were simultaneous, but not all corporeal or all incorporeal species. Indeed, we know that the angels belonged to an elder creation than ourselves. Man's creation was subsequent to the creation of the very matter out of which God formed his body so that the only instance with which we are acquainted would favour the supposition that God, in his adorable love of order, might begin creation in one spot and go on to others, as he has done with angels and men, and with men in their various dispensations. After the angels he came to men and began with earth. There is no intrinsic unlikelihood of his beginning with our system, and with this particular planet in our system, which can be set for a moment against what we know at all events to be a fact, that God chose to take the particular nature of man, who is the inhabitant of this planet, and to choose this orb as the scene of his incarnation and the locality of his redeeming sacrifice. From this orb and from this system he may proceed to others, and so spread reasonable life and worship through starry space. The old argument that it is unlikely such bright worlds 
should not now be furnishing God's glory with reasonable worship, might just as much have been urged against the unpeopled earth through all those interminable epochs during which geology thinks it can show it to us as with incredible slowness ripening for the habitation of men. We cannot talk much of analogies when we know but one case. Yet the one case of earth, as interpreted by geology, discloses God to us as conducting his designs in creation by a circuitous series of preparations of such gigantic dimensions as almost to unsettle our belief in the sobriety of science. But whatever comes of these speculations, if the other worlds were or are inhabited by moral agents, the probability is as irresistible as a probability can be of their being under the sacred humanity of Jesus as their head. They would belong to him in an especial way as the word, through the word's relation to creatures, and it is surely unlikely and unanalogous that he should be to some worlds as incarnate and to some as not incarnate, particularly when we consider that he is head of the angels in his human nature, and that they among themselves are in reality not one family in their nature, in the same sense as men are, but an immense number of species, one possibly differing more from another than a stellar creature would differ from us, or we from a supposed inhabitant of another planet. Creatures in other worlds would probably be created in a state of grace, like the two creations of men and angels. It looks as if it were a part of God's magnificence that it should be so. But grace would hardly come from the word in his one nature, now that he has two, when it did not do so, as we think the more probable opinion, when his human nature was only foreseen. If these worlds, thus created in a state of grace, are unfallen, they are probably standing upright by the grace of the incarnate word. If they are fallen and not restored, whether the fall was partial as with the angels, or universal as with men by their descent, the incarnation probably would mingle with the fall, as it did in the case of the angels. If they are fallen and restored, for the same reasons we should believe that they were restored by him. The locality of his bloodshedding on this particular planet would be no objection, as the angels, although not redeemed by him as either not needing or not being allowed redemption, have nevertheless gained by his merits. They who meditate much on the unity of God, and such meditation is the marked characteristic of those who have an especial devotion to the mystery of the Most Holy Trinity, will almost daily see new probabilities that the family of the glorified would be one. Poles further apart than men and angels could hardly have to be brought together. Yet they are brought together under one head, and it is in his human nature that the word is head of both. If then the marvellous work of the hypostatic union is adequate for this, why multiply headships and so lose the unity of the family, which is the grand shadow of the unity of God? We have hinted at these speculations, not as if they were of importance in themselves, but as showing that the idea of the incarnation, as here brought forward, finds no difficulties in those problems which have been started by the scientific controversies of the day, Thus, wherever we look, whether with upturned heart and eye we blind ourselves by looking into heaven, or range through the manifold kingdoms of earth, or explore the holy hospitals of purgatory, or venture to hang over the dread abyss of the condemned, or imagine theologies for worlds from which we are cut off by gulfs of impassable, unnavigable space, 
everywhere we see the sacred humanity to be the primal creature of God, to be what no other creature is or can be, and to contain or imply all other creatures in itself with a certain sovereign eminence which belongs to it in right of its eternal predestination. End of section 20